0: I know it's kind of hot in here still but you should have felt it at like 5 this morning when I showed up. It was like 85 degrees in here. Something happened to our air conditioner and so I want to say thank you to Larry Wolf. Is Larry here? Where's Larry? He might Larry. Larry is supposed to be retired, but instead he got out of bed really early this morning and come and came and fixed our air conditioners. So hopefully they'll be catching up as we, as we talk this morning. So we're studying the book of Numbers or Sefer Bamidbar, the book of in the wilderness. Um, And at this point in our story, the children of Israel are moving toward the promised land thinking that they'll move right in and find a place to settle and God will defend them, protect them against the other nations. And today is the story um, that you probably are familiar with where they send spies in to, to spy out the land. Now, you guys know this, this story? It turns out this is, a, this is a catastrophe for the children of Israel. But it's one that, that teaches us um, that part of what it means to be human is that we are kind of a mystery to ourselves, that there are aspects of our own being we have no access to, we're almost kind of like blind to it, almost like there are parts of us that don't even exist because for us they sort of don't. They're unconscious, although they're having this deep impact on our lives because our entire personality is organized to keep those things hidden from us and others. And and so to be human is, in a sense, to be kind of haunted by ghosts, of ourselves, haunted by these unknown aspects of our own lives that we can't see or name or acknowledge, we can't even describe them or recognize them as real, and, and when we bump into them, they only kind of register to us as a disturbance. What I mean is, like, when we encounter these parts of ourselves that, that we're, we're estranged from, they feel like a threat to our self-image, our sense of self, like this uncanny sense that we maybe are not who we think we are or say we are. And so we get really defensive. You have those moments where you're interacting, you're like, I'm super defensive and I have no, no idea why. This is it. Because as humans, we're, we're mysteries to ourselves. We're estranged from these unconscious aspects of our own lives and being that sort of haunt us like ghosts and disturb our sense of, self. And I have to admit, I kind of love this idea um, that we're haunted by these unknown aspects of ourself that are undeniably part of who we are, but we can't see them. We can't describe or acknowledge or name or know them. And in fact, this is the part I kind of love, others can see them way before we can, right? We, we can't name them. We can't control them. In fact, it's weird They almost seem to have control over us. I think this is what what Paul was describing in Romans 7 when he said, I don't know what I'm doing because I don't do what I want to do. Instead, I do this thing that I hate. I mean, this is like a fundamental insight into the human condition. Paul says, I don't know why I do like half the things that I do. I don't always feel in control of what I say or do, and there's not something wrong with me. This is just kind of this disturbing part of what it means to be human. We're all, in a sense, strangers to ourselves. Freud called this actually the uncanny aspect of the self, this part of myself that I have trouble seeing and acknowledging or knowing and accepting that mostly just frightens and disturbs me when I run run into it, right? And, and, often causes us to act out in ways we don't understand. This uncanny, troubling part of ourselves that we work hard almost all the time to try to keep hidden from ourselves and others because it's kind of humiliating when we spot it to confront this. And, and, And when we do, it feels so foreign, like it doesn't seem to fit with who we understand ourselves to be. The problem is, of course, um, it's completely obvious to all our family and, and friends and the people that we love. And this is, by the way, o- often why we treat our families so badly, because they see us better than we see ourselves. And um, it's, it's impossible to hide this unconscious baggage 24-7. It slips out, usually in our relationships in conversations, and conversations, and our family almost sort of seems to draw out the ghosts that haunt us. These unwanted and disavowed aspects of the the self. But, in fact, health and growth as a human being involves learning to see these things and integrate them. And and this can happen in in many ways. Freud actually had his favorites. He said it usually happens in dreams. He thought all dreams were this unconscious trying to, to break free. Dreams and fantasies. We come out in Freudian slips where we accidentally say what we really mean. In our nervous joking, you are like, oh, that's what you really think, isn't it? And just in in plain old everyday speech, especially when we're not really thinking, you know, our defenses are down, we're just talking, we'll say things that kind of reveal some unconscious part of ourselves that we don't really want to see. And there are two specific categories of this kind of speech that that helps reveal these hidden aspects of the self that are involved in our text in the story for today. And these two are repetitions and projections. Let me just define these a little bit for us. So repetitions are like words and phrases we repeat over and over almost mindlessly. They're like little compulsive speech habits, words or phrases that seem benign but actually reveal some disavowed aspect of the self. It's like if you're talking to somebody and they end every sentence with right, you know, when somebody does that, like, they'll be talking, right? And they just keep going, right, right? And you're like, who are you trying to convince, like me or you? Or, or like, um, I heard a story, Christmas tell me about a case study where this soldier fought in Vietnam after he came home, would often use the, the phrase, oh, we'll never get out of here. He was like stuck at a red light or in a long ticket line or when service was slow or a doctor's office was blocked or backed up, he would say, I'm never getting out of here. And it would even crop up in like ways that didn't really make sense, like in a crowded hallway or, or when he was startled by a noise, he would say, I'm never getting out of here. And, and this repetition he discovered then was, was like an image of this disavowed aspect of this past trauma living on in his life, this fear he'd never get out of Vietnam. And so often learning to spot these repetitions will lead us to new insights about ourselves. Projects, projections, we probably understand this better, there are another way this happens. They're disavowed aspects of the self that exist within us, but that we externalize and project onto others to try to keep them at a safe distance, right? So this is like the man who... Constantly accuses his wife of infidelity when on some level he's the one who wants to have an affair. He's projected that desire onto the spouse and disavowed it just to keep it at a safe distance. Or this is the whole reason for QAnon. You got any anybody's parents? Q QAnon people? That's this was, I'm hoping it's not you. <laughs> Please let it not be you. <laughs> The, the QAnon thing, it's like these people have these deep seated fears about what must be going on. So they just they project them onto some dude in the Philippines on 4chan, apparently, is Q. It's just some burnout who writes these things. And the, but they, they can externalize them and kind of disavow. It's not me. This is coming from somewhere else. These, these are projections. And often learning to see our projections can reveal to us unknown aspects of the self and help us name them, integrate those things. And so as we read our text for today, these two um, things, projections and repetitions, they're going to kind of point us toward aspects of the children of Israel as a community that are kind of disavowed. And maybe even aspects of ourselves. Um, Today, I just want to say I'm I'm relying heavily on a Jewish scholar named Aviva Zornberg. She's just a wonderful teacher of scripture, um, and she has this reading of of this story that I'm borrowing, although she would say it comes from a long Jewish tradition of how to read and interpret this story that predates even Freud's theory of the unconscious. It it recognizes things like repetitions and and projections even before they had that language. But there are these repetitive statements that come up with the children of Israel. It almost starts to feel like they're hiding something. These repetitions that, that kind of let us in on their true fears or feelings. And there's a projection that happens in their speech. And it seems like they're kind of projecting their issues onto God and distancing themselves from their own Problem. So, so Zornberg says, paying, paying attention to these can help us understand this story and hopefully understand ourselves and, and maybe even God a little more clearly. Our story comes from Numbers 13 and 14, where we're told, "...the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites." From each of their ancestral tribes, you shall send a man. And we don't probably know it, but there's a big controversy about this. There's a question embedded as to whose idea it was to send spies in the first place. Because from, from the language, it sounds like it's God. Um, but it, it, that's mostly an English thing. The, the rabbis have big, big fights over this. Whose idea? Was it God? Was it Moses? Was it the people? And kind of their consensus, there are some notable exceptions, but their consensus is, in Jewish tradition, that God never liked this idea of sending the spies into the land. God was like, I already spied out the land. I told you, it's good. Like, why don't you just trust me about this? But, but they want to do it, and so God kind of goes along with it, sort of like you give your children some, some room to range to try to get them to, to follow through with the plans here. So God's instructions here are more like God making a concession, just saying, okay, if you're going to do this, if you have to do this, do it this way. Have somebody from all the 12 tribes go. And then it says, Moses sent them out saying, see what the land is like and whether the people who live on it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land they live on is good or bad, and whether the towns that they live in are unwalled or fortified, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether or not there are trees in it. I don't know if you caught it there, but there's a deep connection in the language here to the Genesis narrative. Like, remember when Adam and Eve inspect the fruit of the garden, and here they're inspecting the fruit of the land In the Hebrew, actually, the the question Moses poses, see if the land is tov or ra, good or evil. It's the same same phrase used in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there's this parallel happening between our story and the temptation of Adam and Eve. And it kind of sets us up to wonder if this is going to be another failure. So they go spy out the land for 40 days and we're told they entered the Cluster Ravine, cut from there a branch with one cluster of grapes and carried it on a pole between them. They also took pomegranates and figs. So this is, this is a serious cluster of grapes. It takes two guys on a pole to, to deal with it. I was thinking of, who is, is it? Um, Empire Strikes Back with Han Solo on the pole. That's what I was thinking of, sorry. It's a weirdness. It's a serious cluster of grapes. And then figs, we should think of fig leaves. This is what Adam and Eve used, used to cover their nakedness. Pomegranates are carved all over the, the tabernacle. And, and the tabernacle, of course, symbolizes the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil in, in the garden. And, and so we have actually the tree of life in the garden. And, and so there's just there's more connections here to the temptation of Adam and Eve. And then they say, we came to the land to which you sent us and indeed It flows with milk and honey. This was actually new to me. I didn't realize. So um, milk here is a symbol of like rich pasture land. So flowing with milk means rich pasture land where goats and cows can graze because that's where they got their milk. So this is about domesticated animals producing abundance. And then honey is about wild things like bees producing abundance. So, So in this land, whether it's a domesticated thing or a wild thing, all of it is bringing forth abundance and, and at first they kind of almost sound like kids coming back from a, a an adventure, you know, telling their story, showing people their souvenirs, you know, what they picked up on the way. But then there's this word that that drops like a bomb and transforms the story into a catastrophe. And the word is FS in Hebrew. It's kind of an unusual word in scriptures. It's usually translated However, but literally, what the word means is nothingness, zero, negation, non-existence, and, and the literary force of this word fs is, is massive. Um, the Rambam, a, a great rabbi, said that the whole story pivots around this one word fs. They say, however, fs, however, there are powerful people who live in the land. The cities have huge fortifications. Moreover, we saw the descendants of the Anakites there. The Amalekites live in the land of the arid southern plain. The Hittites, Jebusites, the Amorites live in the mountains. And the Canaanites live by the sea along the Jordan. So the tone shifts from this rational reporting, you know, just from fruits and, and facts to this tall tale meant to strike fear in the hearts of the people. And the people start to murmur. And so so it says, Caleb calmed the people before Moses and said, we must go up and take possession of it because we are more than able to do it. And immediately the other spies jump in and they say, we are not able to go up against this people for they are stronger than we. And they brought, it says, to the Israelites an unfavorable report of the land. They just said the land was good that they bring an unfavorable report of the land they spied out, saying that land we have gone through as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it were giants. They saw the Nephilim and the Anakites come from the Nephilim. And, and to ourselves, we seemed like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them, they say. So they're spinning a the yarn here. This land devours, it eats, eats people for breakfast, right? We saw giants with our own eyes. We look like grasshoppers, just like a bunch of shrimps to them. All of these things, by, by the way, all these concepts, grasshoppers, giants, Nephilim, the land-devouring people, these are all symbolic connections from the story in Genesis, right? They're tied to, to this, this a picture of creation kind of running off the rails, Remember what God is doing in the wilderness with the children of Israel. He's creating this little oasis in the middle of um, Bamidbar, the desert, the, the wilderness, this, this camp of people that are like a new land of Eden. And The Levites and the priests are like a new garden. The tabernacle is like a new tree of life. It, it's all symbolizing Genesis and creation Rightly ordered. And finally, this, this camp is on the move, right? Subduing chaos in, in the wilderness, acting as God's agents uh, of Yahweh's blessings, first in their own camp, but now they're headed in, into the land of Canaan with this to, to, to demonstrate for the people what a life of peace looks like. But the children of Israel are a people haunted by ghosts by the traumas and tragedies of their past, and by these deep, unacknowledged fears that live within their own common life. And so this is like a test here in the wilderness, a place of testing. It's similar to the testing of Adam and Eve with the fruit. Will they trust in Yahweh to tell them who they are and where they're going, or will they trust in these giants who see them as as grasshoppers? The rabbis actually say, I mean, this is the standard um, Jewish interpretation, is that the giants in this story play the same exact role that the serpent plays in the temptation of Adam and Eve. is that while they They're both these created things that offer an alternative narrative for what it means to be the people of God. And Adam and Eve let the serpent define who they are. And here are the question is, will they let the giants define them? What we're told is the entire community raised their voice and the people wept that night. All the Israelites criticized Moses and Aaron. The entire community said to them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt or if only we had died in this desert, why is the Lord bringing us to the land to fall by the sword? And our wives and our our children will be taken by force. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? And so they said to each other, let's pick a leader, a new leader, not Moses, and let's go back to Egypt. And this is, this is the great catastrophe. They fail the test. And because of this, they're not going straight into the land. They're, they're headed into the wilderness for 40 years. And here's the thing. I think it's actually, I hope, it's actually kind of hard to blame them. If you think about it, they've been through a lot, these former slaves. When when they start talking, it almost sounds like something has triggered a past trauma. It's almost like they start muttering this word giants. That's all they can talk about is giants. There are giants in the land. land. The giants, the land, it's going to devour us. It's kind of disturbing and, and sad. Joshua, in fact, speaks up finally, saying the land that we went through as spies is very good. By the way, very good, it's the same phrase used in Genesis when Adam and Eve are finally together. God calls it not just good, but very good. Same words. He says, if the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel, he says, against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land. They will be our bread. We'll eat. We'll devour them, right? Their, their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But then it tells us what actually happened. But the whole congregation threatened to stone them. And what Zornberg says is the Jewish tradition remembers this, this scene as their ancestors, their people, suffering from a deep trauma that has them sort of stuck in these repetitions, repetitions about the giants in the land, and, and then their old favorite, we want to go back to Egypt. Right? They just say this over and over, like a mantra. It's bordering on like psychotic, it's a compulsion, it's this disturbed mantra that stems, she says, from years of trauma. I mean, if you think about it, what these guys have been through, it's kind of stunning. I mean, first of all, centuries of bondage in in Egypt, the killing of their firstborn kids by Pharaoh, just tormented by Pharaoh. Um, then, then the 10 plagues, which were like, th- that was creepy, the stuff that was happening all around them. Like the water's turning to blood. There's like frogs and locusts. I mean, it had to be like very, they had to be freaked out by this. Then the Passover, tens and, and thousands of um, dead children, firstborn kids, listening to the shrieks of Egyptian mothers and fathers. That's going to leave a mark. And, and then in the Exodus, they're walking through the water, up walls of water on each side. That's going to freak anybody out. Plus, it's like closing in on Pharaoh and his army, and they're like, is it going to, like, stop? <laughs> is it going to get us? Then they finally get to Sinai, and Moses, who's supposed to be leading them, keeps, like, disappearing for weeks on end. They're like, where is he going? Is he coming back? Is and they're also just, you know, in the middle of the desert, which swallows up whole civilizations. And th- this was a brutal season. Just one trauma after another. Of course they pivot to these kind of repetitions about giants, about wanting to go back to Egypt. Zornberg says this, this is how they interpret it as a Jewish people. This reveals a deep unconscious fear of their own freedom It stems from their traumatic past. They're scared to death out here in the wilderness. Let's just let's go back to the Egyptians when they had authority over, the, over us. It's almost like the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know in Canaan. We'd rather be dead than face a war with giants, right? And they're trapped in this repetition of speech. Let's go back to Egypt, right? All we see here are giants. They can't see what this means about them. Caleb and Joshua can. Moses and Aaron can. And it turns out their children will be able to see it, which is always scary to me. Like my kids, like what are they reading in my unconscious that I can't see in myself? Zornberg says that many of the rabbis say we should have compassion on the children of Israel. We should remember that... There was once a time when we were all surrounded by giants. What they mean is when we were children, surrounded by giants. That we've all been through a time when we were incredibly susceptible to our own family, especially the adults in our lives, our parents, our siblings, teachers, aunts and uncles, we all went through a time when we had to like crane our necks up to see everyone who was like giants to us. And we needed them so much, we'd do anything to please them, including a lot of damaging things to ourselves and to others, for which we had to, you know, disavow parts of our own identity just to fit in with our family of origin with these giants. And so we took on. Even the compulsive speech patterns of our giants, we took on their ideologies, their prejudices, their judgments, even their enemies. We did it because we needed to feel safe, right? We needed needed them in order to survive. But now as as adults, things have kind of changed and we have new longings, new lands to explore, new aspects of identity to, to discover and some of us are, are in this right now. We're just discovering our freedom as a kind of emancipation from the giants who shaped us when we were young. And yet that pull to the safety of home, it can be really, really strong. Do you feel that? Like this, this helps us find compassion for them. It can cause a fair amount of anxiety, I think. Actually, Soren Kierkegaard had this, this famous line. He said once that anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. Think about that. Anxiety is the dizziness of, of freedom. Sometimes our own freedom just overwhelms us. All these dizzying choices disorient us and all the consequences of any choice. Th- this story teaches that it's sometimes easier to pretend, just pretend we're still enslaved that we don't have the choices we have, that we're less than we know ourselves to be, less than what God has intended us to be. And what we end up doing is we sort of trade our freedom for this illusion of safety. And we're afraid of giants, so we want to go back to Egypt. a Time without so many choices, you know, without so much dizzying freedom. This is why we need the wilderness. This is it. For, to, to have some time to allow those um, broken bindings and vestiges of our past to slip from our arms and our ankles, to let them die off so that we can learn how to be both free and unafraid at the same time. And it's harder than you might think because there was once this time when we were all surrounded by giants and it shaped our identity and in some ways I think maybe we don't ever really fully get over that I mean for me I know there are still people who seem to loom over me like giants you know they still seem to have too much authority over me their opinion of me matters too much I still catch myself trying to win their approval and curb myself to fit in with them And this is akin to saying there are giants in the land right when life is hard, when I feel like I'm failing, it's easy to kind of look back to Egypt in a time when things are much more simple. It takes courage to let go of that fantasy. That's, that's what the wilderness is for, to teach us to stand in the world and be ourselves, to follow our own convictions, to trust our own bearing, you know, not worry so much about that parent or teacher or coach or sibling or whoever is kind of the voice in the back of our heads. Stop obsessing over how they see us or what they would do and begin to embody God in a way that is authentic to us. This is what God wants. And this is the serious work of discipleship in the wilderness. And I think it's work that we all have to do. In Deuteronomy, um, Moses looks back and talks about this night, the spies return, and this is what he says. He's getting mad at his people. He says, you sulked in your tents and said, it is because God hates us that he brought us out of the land of Egypt to hand us over to the Amorites to wipe us out. Kind of a stark way to say it. They sulked in their tents, believing God hated them. The, the rabbis say, this is clearly a, a projection, right? One of several like, yes, it's a good and spacious land flowing with milk and honey. Fs, however, negate that. There might be giants that are too powerful. What if that's just a projection? The, 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 the truth would be something like, we might be giants. We might be too powerful. We might destroy ourselves. That's a common um, Hebrew approach. Yes, God promised to be with us. F.S. However, we cannot trust Yahweh. And the projection here would be something like we, we can't really trust ourselves. We're the faithless ones. Isn't that wild to see that as a projection? Yes, Yahweh has promised to give us to the land. F.S. However, we're pretty sure God hates us. And the projection here would be something like we hate God for dragging us out here into the wilderness, making us go through this. And of course, who hasn't hated a parent, or teacher, or coach, or sibling, or boss, or spouse for dragging us through some wilderness experience? I think this is such a challenging reading of the text, um, mostly because like we've all had enough trauma In our own lives to be made wary of even God's promises. Does that resonate? We've all felt enough pain to just wonder what is happening. We've all become cynical because of it or turned to despair. We've been hurt enough by this life to to often turn around and blame God or accuse God. It's often just a form of projection. Mm. A lot of the time, this is what we do. I can't be the only one, right, who has had the thought that if God exists, that God must be a monster for allowing the world to become as bad as it is, you know, for letting evil prosper, for letting horrible things happen, for letting horrible things happen to me. Of course, this is a projection because, you know, we are the ones who have made the world the way it is. Blaming God is just a way of kind of keeping that outside us and and projecting it onto God, avoiding our own responsibility, our own freedom. But, The reality is we are responsible for our own catastrophes. By we, I don't mean us individually so much, although that's sometimes true. But we, the humanity, we're responsible for our own catastrophes. God is only ever trying to get us without overwhelming us or turning us into robots, trying to help us just to live and be in the world as ourselves without fear. I mean, I say this often, unapologetically. I think all God ever really says to us is be. I want you to be. I want you to exist as yourself, not some, imagined version of yourself but as you not some trumped up you that you think will please the giants in their life in your life and and there I mean there will be traumas you can count on it like nobody rides for free but still God says be exist I want you to be and not just be I want you to be at peace in the world, to find shalom, to find wholeness and flourishing. But I cannot do it for you. You have to walk through life on your own two feet. And in fact, God asks humanity from the very beginning to take responsibility for the world. That's the idea of dominion. The world is literally, in a theological sense, the world is literally what we make of it. And it's a long hard look in the mirror, or you might say a long hard season in the wilderness that finally teaches us to say, I'm not mad at God for letting all this happen. I'm mostly mad at myself for letting all this happen. I'm mad at humanity for letting things go this far. I'm mad at my own giants for hurting me And getting away with it. And I'm probably going to have to learn to forgive all of us. And the first step toward that is usually to begin to trust again, to begin to like slowly just soften into again this idea or this reality that God doesn't hate us, God is not angry with us. God loves us and is just saying, Be, I want you to be, stand up, walk. And that it is we who have hated ourselves and each other and blamed and hated God. I mean, everybody struggles with self hatred. Like, it's part of the deal and it's killing us, it's killing the world. And in the wilderness, we'll either come to the point where we stop and just sort of give up, and it is a lot more of a like, um less like holding on and more like letting go, you know? And we'll do this or we'll continue to struggle and make a mess of our lives, blaming God and fretting about giants and longing for Egypt. But if we wanna if we wanna see the promised land, right? It begins with this this recognition that Nobody has made a mess of the world for us. We, humanity, we are responsible for our own catastrophes. And we need to stop projecting this on God. I mean, that's it's like one of the, the most common moves right now in our culture is to look around at the way things are and say, I don't believe in God. This is such a mess. And just a way of avoiding our responsibility for the messes. And if we can face it, Sometimes it's our repetitions. Well, you're, you're all going to be like watching repetitions now. It's going to be great. Watching, thinking about the giants, our projections. And eventually we're going to have to just forgive ourselves and each other and our families, our parents. Forgive the, just the world for being all jacked up. And and this is where it starts, and and, and we're going to have to do this if we're ever going to just find a way to be ourselves in the world and be okay and not afraid. And I really think this is all God is after, is just to help us to finally become human as human is meant to be in us, specifically you as a person. Let's pray. Just invite you to take a deep breath here for a minute. I know it's kind of a heavy idea. This is a heavy season there in the wilderness. You know, this is grown-up discipleship here. We're trying to go as a community where most people, I mean most people, don't want to go. To be human is to be haunted by ghosts, man, of our past, by giants, by disavowed aspects of ourself. We're trying to spot them through maybe repetitions and projections, help us see and integrate and forgive ourselves and each other and God. This is how we become human, as human is meant to be. This is how we can finally become ourselves in the world, free and unafraid. God, I pray that you would help us to see that we are free, that you have set us free, and that we can be trusted with our freedom. And we know we're gonna to have to do a lot of work to get there, but we need you to reassure us that we can do it, that we, we were made for this struggle. And though it may take a lifetime, to learn how to just be ourselves. Help us see that if we'll just embrace that journey, it will make life good and sweet, that we'll live in a a land that's good and spacious and flowing with milk and honey. Help us to trust that you're not a monster who hates us, but that you have us, you keep us. I pray, God, for everybody here who has struggled through big traumas. And I just pray that we would find healing together, learn how to talk about it. Ask you, God, just to be with us in our wilderness, each of us, guide us, be gentle with us, be patient with us, protect us, lead us on into the future that you have for us. We believe in you. Help us in our unbelief. Help us in our struggle to believe in ourselves and each other. Amen. I invite you to stand if you would please and we're going to receive communion. The way we do communion is we just the ushers will release us row by row and we'll come forward. You'll be offered a plate of bread and a cup. And you take a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup and then you can receive it. And as you do, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can respond, I will remember or however you feel comfortable. The reason that we do this is that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, um, he took a loaf of bread and a cup and he had all his disciples share in this same loaf, the same cup, kind of a common meal. And then he interpreted it as a symbol. He said, this this, um, bread is like my body. This blood is like or this, um, this wine, this cup is like my blood, my life. And he said, this is what I want you to do. Whenever you gather, take my, my life into your life and, and be made of the stuff I'm made out of and then go out into the world to be my hands and feet. He said, every time you gather, do this. And so this is why we receive communion each week. And it's also why we put no limits on the table. Anybody who calls on the name of Christ can, can come join us. Um, but before we do this, if you would pray with me, let's, let's bless the bread and the cup. Lord, we do ask your blessing on this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Will you come and live inside us, make us new from the inside out, and then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All of this to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord and Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come? Thank mm-hmm. you.